You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, another Between Seasons bonus episode covering Ty West's X, featuring vampire bats, redneck snipers, hot babysitters, deformed devil worshippers, haunted hotels, suicide cults, and a motherfucking porno holocaust. Martin. Yes. Tilt the camera up a little bit so it'll look like his cock. That's right, I ain't scared in the least. If there's enough blood and guts to satiate the beast, a knife across your throat, the blood runs down your naked chest. Cause killing bitches in the dark is what I do best. Cut to it, summer camp, you a skinny dipping. Cut you to the bone, that knife is jack is still ripping. Blood splatter don't matter, I'm bad. I got a whole camp to kill. No, I don't got time to shatter. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Doing all right. Ready to get into some porno? Always. How about some <laughs> How about some dead bodies? Also always. How about some porno and some dead bodies? Yes. All right, and if you haven't guessed or listened to the intro to this actual fucking episode, I guess, we're covering Ty West's X and really the whole filmography of Ty West because, frankly, um, last week... One of us, at the very least, might have stepped in some shit because we uh, were a little snide toward Mr. West and his his upcoming movie. But you, uh, we're between seasons right now, and the, during the last week, we kind of took a week off to for a break. And you were also at South by Southwest, where you saw yeah. the premiere of X, correct? Yeah, I saw the premiere. Uh, it was in the midnighter section. It was like a ten thirty screening at the Stateside downtown where I saw his last film um, in the Valley of Violence. Great place for uh, a horror movie, smaller crowd. Right. The whole cast and crew was there. Most, Except for those of, old ass wooden chairs in the state side. Those, those are some back killers. Baby. Oh, I was being annoyingly shifting in my butt. Like the guy yeah. next to me was not happy. Cause I was just like, I could not get comfortable. Well, for anybody over like five foot eight, not a comfortable place to watch a movie. You're like seven foot nine. So can't imagine that that did any wonders for your posture. Absolutely not. But it was, it was cool. It was definitely actually, it was funny. I went to Southwest this year and it was the only movie I saw in the theater. <laughs> I was there for like six days. Well, yeah, because I was texting you and I was like, oh, what are you seeing? You're like, I don't know. I'm at some synth pop shit right now. I was just drinking and catching on with people, which was great. It was yeah. just like it had that celebratory feel. I mean, honestly, sometimes you need a break from movies. Yeah, and, and there was just nothing. Honestly, the lineup was not particularly amazing this year. It was a lot of stuff that comes out next week. Like, well, that was is, my it's been going big, that way for a while. Yeah, that was my big uh, kind of. Takeaway from the program of South by this year, and honestly, one of the reasons why I didn't attend was the fact that, like, you know, even the big headliners, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, is coming out like in a week mm -hmm. now. Yep. And then I didn't even realize that X comes out the Friday after that it premiered at South by. Yeah, I saw it five days early. Yeah. Like, and, it's not well, even, yeah. And to your point, like, this stuff 
wasn't uncommon in the past at the film festivals, at any film festival, even all up to and including Sundance in, in certain situations, especially their like secret screenings, because yeah. they would secret screen stuff like Get Out, and that would come out like a month later. But I hate to say it, but after the age of COVID, or I guess we're still in the age of COVID, um, and the shortened release windows it's harder to work yourself up to go down, particularly South by because South by is a chore to attend. Oh dude. Even if you fucking live here because of all of the, you have to stand in line for fucking three hours for every goddamn movie. You basically have to walk between every venue because like they shut down the entirety of downtown Austin. You know, the shuttles are, they run and they're pretty good. But like sometimes like I remember Back whatever year when Ready Player One played as the secret... 2017. 2017 2017 was the secret screening. I remember hopping a bus with uh, Meredith Borders from uh, Birth Movies Death at the time to literally go across town with like three minutes to spare to catch hereditary at like 1230. And they ended up pushing back that screening until like one in the morning. But by the time we got to the end of hereditary, I was like just straight up passed out zoning in and out in like a draft house seat being like, what's happening in this movie? I'm not even sure. Tony Collette, beheaded kid, Satan. What the fuck? Who's Paimon? Shit. Just get me out of here, man. But no, like we do have to maybe make a bit of a retraction because during our Batman episode two weeks ago now, we talked a little bit of shit on Ty West. We were a little dismissive of X uh, when it came up in conversation. I'd have to run the tape back to see exactly what Oh, it was during Texas Chainsaw. Said. Yeah. It was, well, was it, it Texas it was Chainsaw? That episode. Okay. Yeah. So I'm even misremembering what episode we have to fucking apologize for at this point. But we talked a little shit. But here's the thing. What else is the internet good for if not for shopping, talking shit, logging and watching movies, and like occasionally, I guess, finding a funny meme or a good picture of a cute cat? Like, I can't think of anything else for the internet. So, you know what? We talked our shit, but now we got to back it up. And when it came time to back it up, uh, I believe that you had a different experience than I did revisiting all of Ty West's movies because you... Is it safe to say we're not converted? Well, it's funny. I I was the converted for a long time. Right. Um, Maybe the devoted the, is a better word. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, the devoted. So I a was... true Ty West believer. When... So I... When um, House of the Devil came out, I was in grad school. And I was... I saw a trailer for it. And I said, oh, shit. Like what the hell is this? Like I was writing my master's thesis on slasher films, like the early eighties. I was like, wow, this is like right up my alley. Yeah. Same. You know, actually I think a friend sent me the trailer on YouTube. He goes, check this out. It's the super indie horror film. And it was early in like streaming days. And I remember his Amazon had a very limited streaming platform and I, or, right. and I rented it for $10 and it didn't come anywhere near me. I rented it for $10 on my computer so I watched it on my laptop in my fucking bedroom in like 2009. Well, like, even Ty West it. says he, I was listening to an interview with him 
recently where he was talking about the distribution of his movies. And he was like, what a lot of people don't remember is that like house of the devil was one of the first movies that kind of did okay with streaming. Like it was at the beginning of that bubble uh, kind of building, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that was my experience. I said, Oh, what a cool way for me to get this movie that I'm not going to be able to see. Cause even though I was in Atlanta, it, I don't think it came anywhere. And as, as far as I know, came anywhere near me in the theater, but I was like really blown away by it, and I was a you know wanting to be a horror filmmaker, and again writing about horror films. So for me, it just it, it pushed all the right buttons. Um, I counted the days till Innkeepers came out, um, and I started a wane there. I, I didn't love Innkeepers. I still don't. Um, then I kind of just like I slowly kind of got further and further off the train. Um, and we'll get, I got to interview him, and he was a great interview when he did in the Value of Violence, and he's a super like. He's very articulate, articulate, like very erudite, intelligent. Um, and honestly, he's he gives one of the few interviews because I've listened to and read a bunch from uh, the last shit of what almost 20 years at this point of his filmmaking career. And you don't get a whole lot of bullshit from him. Like he's pretty straight shooting. He doesn't blow himself up or anybody else up and kind of shoots exactly. He shoots it straight with exactly what he's thinking about with these movies and isn't afraid in a lot of cases to tell an interviewer when he thinks they're wrong. Yeah. And, and I did not have that experience. Thankfully he was very cool with me and it was actually like my second interview I'd ever done. Yeah. But even when he does it, when you read it in print, he, it doesn't come off like he's being a dick. Like somebody will say something. He'll be like, ah, you know, I don't really see it that way, like, or I wouldn't use that word to describe it, but like, I see where you're coming from, and then he'll correct you. Like, he's never he he's never dickish when no, he does. No, no, and he wasn't that way. But we had a we had a good interview, and he was very gracious with me again for like being a novice. Um, but I was very excited to meet him, and and one like you were saying, one of the things that's interesting about him, and I don't want to steal your thunder about a point you want to make on the line here, but one of the things you texted me about, which I agree with, is like there's no real pretension to the kind of stories he's telling um, versus like the, like Ari Aster's and the Robert Eggers where it's like, I love both those filmmakers, but they're, yeah. they're very pretentious. Um, well, and my big thing with Ty and here's, let's just jump into 2005's the roost yeah. to, just so we can kind of dig into the filmography itself. So like 18, 19 year old Ty West in New York city has Kelly Reichert of all people as her, as his uh, professor she introduces him to Larry Fessenden, who he in turn interns for uh, his company, which he even has described in early interviews as being like, I cleaned Larry's apartment a lot. That was my internship for, for like glass eye picks, you know? But then he would also like Larry would watch his short films and be like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. And became kind of like a mentor to yeah. him. And then when it came time for him to graduate, he was like, Larry asked him like, Oh, what do you want to do now? And Ty was like, Oh, well, I guess I'll do what everybody else fucking does. I'll move to LA. I'll write some scripts. I'll work some gigs and hopefully, you know, get some experience under my belt and, and climb the ladder and hopefully direct my own movies one day. And Larry was like, well, what if I gave you 50 grand to make a movie right now? Would you do that? And he was like, yeah, sure. I already have a script, you know, laying around that I want to take the weekend to punch up. And then we can shoot this for 50 grand, which was a complete lie. He even admits to, he goes, I didn't have a script. I wrote it over a weekend. I love that. And what uh, came of it was the roost from 2005, which is a very low fi 16 millimeter 
creature feature late night kind of homage to B movies or like the type of stuff because that you would see on like a chiller theater because it even has its own built in Goulardi with Tom Newton who becomes his guy for two movies between this and house of the devil. And that's to me the cleverest part of uh, the film itself. Yeah, it's um, it's got a great frame story because I, right. I I haven't seen this since probably 2010 because I tracked the movie down on a really shitty DVD after I saw House of the Devil but right. before Innkeepers came out. So oh, it's got another film, hell yeah! And I yeah, because it was put out by like Showtime and Paramount on mostly like direct to video, and yeah. a lot of people saw it on like Showtime, which is kind of fitting for the type of film that it is and the kind of films that it's paying homage to. Absolutely, it's definitely. I mean, it is the old. It is a midnight movie in every sense of the word and and i i love the frame of of tom noonan you and i both love tom noonan i mean tom noonan's playing like lurch on quaaludes in this oh he's he, well it's great because like i don't want to i have a few things i want to say about him and house of the devil he's my favorite part of that but like tremendous performance yeah he's great and he he really gets what like ty west is going for tonally and it's definitely a young a young man's film like you see that oh yeah and, and one of the things you messaged me about was just like it felt like a guy and his friends making a movie yeah it um, has a real backyard uh with my buddies eight millimeter kind of energy to it although to his credit he shot the entire thing on super 16 which is crazy because I mean, i've only ever seen shitty transfers of it yeah like me too. It's these dvd transfer i would love to see that like you know a film or a better transfer of it you know, and I think that it's the CG is actually really impressive. Like for the um, the bats is actually like really impressive. Yeah, um, especially when you consider the amount of money that they made the movie for. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also the rubbery kind of gore effects. Because I mean, to your point and what you were raising, kind of what I text messaged to you is that like the whole story is like kids are going to a wedding on Halloween and car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. They get stranded in a a farmhouse in Pennsylvania in Kennett square. This movie was actually shot about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And like, then they're attacked by vampire bats. And then there's some zombie shit when you're bitten by the vampire bats and some creepy ass old people, a cop dies, but like none of it's original. It's almost like it almost feels like a, a a short story that you would write in high school. Like if you wanted to be like a Stephen King or a Clive Barker or even a Joe Lansdale type writer, like yes. this is your first draft. This is what you're working out of yourself. Yeah, it felt almost like like almost like Stephen King's graveyard shift, the way that's written. Right, exactly. You know, and it's um as threadbare as it can possibly be, but that honestly became a trademark of West's movies even up to this day. Yeah, it's something that he I did notice what I watched them. I think except for X, so I watched I watched first, and then I went back through the rest. To, and I'd seen them all before, except Trigger Man. I watched them in order. Yeah, I, except for X, I I watched the rest in order. And the thing about it's it is interesting. There's definitely some like Arturist touches that that were like you said run throughout from the beginning. And I think that while I don't love this aspect, but there's a lot. Like a, a long setup in all of his films. Like the, the horror comes in very late. Um, and, and there are some where it works better than others, where it feels like you're getting into a mood. And then before the horror kind of comes out, it's, it's building dread. This um, one comes a little quicker because even yes. in the, the interviews that I was reading uh, with him about the movie at the time is that he even talks about how Fessenden 
was with uh, Glass Eye Picks, and I believe the the subsidiary that he was founding underneath it called Scareflix. Scareflix.com or whatever, yeah. Is that he was trying to adopt like the Corman method almost to where it was like low budget. Every seven minutes. No, yeah, no name filmmakers. You, you're you given them an amount of money and you have to come back and as long as you deliver the goods, you can make whatever movie you want. Yeah. And so, but like this delivers a little better than his later stuff does in terms of just how quick you get to the actual horror because it only takes about 20 or so minutes for the vampire bats to show up where like let's say in x it's over half the movie until you get to the actual slasher portion of the picture yeah and i mean innkeepers even longer i mean innkeepers I think innkeepers is, might be 15 minutes of horror in a 90 minute movie yeah it's very backloaded um and there's there's some horrific moments earlier in House of the Devil, but it still makes you wait quite a while. Well, and at least Very House of the Devil opens with that satanic panic title card and everything. And like you kind of know what you're in for. And, and frankly, death. well, Greta's death is earlier, too. But even from the opening credits of House of the Devil, where it has that amazing freeze frame of her and that great title card and then that borderline like carpenter-esque like synth uh score that kicks in like, the Jeff, like oh the Jeff Gray stuff yeah you're like okay I know what movie I'm watching now absolutely um but no actually I was uh, more impressed with the roost this time around than when I last saw it because I was coming off a of house of the devil last time and I was like it's definitely not as good as house of the devil well, it, no. it, it's just the budget and everything and I was just like oh, okay the but, best word I could come up for it is charming. Yeah. Like it's just incredibly like you're impressed by the moxie of it all. Like you went out and you just did the thing and you delivered the movie that you said that you would. And frankly, you have a career because of it. Yeah. It's got some pluck. It's competently made. I mean, yeah, very competent, very competently made. Like there's some rough stuff, like especially early on with like the car sequences when it's basically almost lit entirely by like the car's interior lights and and some of the dialogue is like okay some of the dialogue is clunky like student filmish but honestly there's one stunt in it too where the cop flies out the top level of the the uh, old dilapidated barn and just goes face first in the fucking pavement where I rewound it and went holy shit like. Is that a real person? I don't Was know that how a they stunt shot man that. who did it? Because like for again for fifty grand, like that dude, if if he did that for real, was risking life and limb. It's some jackass shit. It like face plants into concrete. Yeah, it's real hard. Yeah. <laughs> but immediately after this in two thousand seven, because this played at South by as well mm-hmm. in two thousand five, I believe back then the Midnighter section was called. Round midnight. Oh, that's it was cool. actually called Midnighters. But the one thing I want to break up or bring up in that you were starting to mention earlier is the pretension thing. In that I I agree, and what I said to you is that I don't believe he's pretentious about storytelling or the types of stories he's trying to tell because they are all almost archetypal uh, horror film or exploitation film setups because you have like. The roost is car breaks down, monsters attack, zombies, X, Y, Z. And then... Trigger Man's in the woods. Trigger Man is dudes in the woods get uh, picked off by, like, unseen assassin. Like, it's some deliverance shit. And then you get to House of the Devil is, like, hot babysitter, home alone, gets menaced by horrible devil-worshipping people. That's the movie. Then you get to, like, The Sacrament is... Um, Bound footage. Is straight up Jonestown. Yeah. 
bullshit. And then like even X is like, here's porno Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, in 1979. But the pretension from Ty West, and it's a thing that I really admire. And frankly, when we get to X, I can't wait to talk about is that his pretension all, uh, is put into the area of craft. Yeah. It's all about showing off what he can do with the camera or applying a personal touch to something that you've seen before. And like the roost in particular to me, the, the actual movie within the movie, which is the majority of the film with the kids and everything, there's not a whole lot of stylistic stuff there. There's some like handheld flourishes and some pretty cool shots. But the wraparound is the thing that struck me most of him being like, oh, I have an idea for this. This is how we tell this story. Because by the end, you're almost going into to two different arenas that he predicts in a weird way in 2005. One is the faux Grindhouse boom that would come along two years later with Grindhouse and would result in all the stuff with like, Black, everything from like Black Dynamite to like uh, Devil's Rejects. Yeah. In that, like, he was kind of ahead of the curve in that regard of being like, remember all of these old movies? Why don't we do that? Like, that seems like a thing we should be nostalgic for and we can bring back. And like the idea of Goulardi and Joe Bob Briggs and Chiller Theater and all that stuff, like, he really like kind of predicted that in a weird way. And the second thing, is in the the second bit of the the very last bit of bookend with Tom Noonan when the quote unquote master comes home he's like oh and you we find out that basically the camera because he's addressing it the whole time and the whole time that the movie's going on with the bookends it almost seems like he's just a straight up host but then by the end it turns out that the camera that he's addressing because he's doing all these like crypt keeper esque puns. And uh, like Goulardi style, like horror hosting and stuff, or like Sven Gulli too is the other reference point that came into my brain. But then like by the last one, like the camera adopts the actual viewer's point of view to where he's like, oh no, the master's home. You need to get out of here. This is crazy. And then it becomes almost like a first person found footage thing where we're stumbling through this old mansion, lighting matches. And then it just ends with you getting attacked by a giant monster that we never actually see. That's the master. Like to me, he in a weird way, he also predicts the found footage boom that would take over horror cinema for the next like decade or so with paranormal activity and sinister and films like that. Like the guy's got a big old brain on him and he's putting it all to work even at such a young age. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think another thing that I thought of watching this film is it felt very close to night of living dead. Um, again, the Pennsylvania thing, Yeah, but also like just that feeling of just like the farmhouse, the do it yourself nature, not far off the age of, Romero when he made that film. Well, this is the thing know. that I want to talk about when we get to X too, is because he's clearly in love with the idea of the outside renegade filmmaker because like, yeah, to your point, like it's the guy who's coming out of nowhere because he's from Delaware yeah. of all places. And like, like George Romero, who was from Pittsburgh and was an industrial filmmaker and working for like Fred Rogers and stuff. Like he came out of nowhere and sh- like shot, 
Night of the Living Dead on weekends, and that became one of the most celebrated horror films in all of American history, maybe the most celebrated in American history. And then like with X, he's looking to Toby Hooper and totally emulating this Austin hippie from the late sixties, early seventies, who just went out and like he did, just did the damn thing and made the fucking Texas chainsaw massacre. And again, it didn't matter if it was funded by the mafia or if he was just recruiting his friends and basically abusing them for like 18 hour workdays to get the movie done. Like he was just going to make his movie come hell or high water. And that seems to be the type of guy that Ty West is, or at least the type of guy that Ty West really idolizes because it just shines through throughout the rest of his filmography in one like way or another. Yeah. I like that. So, I mean, because even with Fessenden being the guy who backs him, like there's a rogue, NYC filmmaker who was doing like every aspect of, you know, his productions from producing them to acting him in, in them to writing them, editing them. Like Wes does all that too. Like with the next movie trigger man, he basically does everything but act in the film because he mans the camera. He wrote it. He edits it. He produced it. And I think the legend is he made trigger man in 2007 for like 10 grand. That's what There's the budget not on, much movie. The budget online said 10 grand. Yeah. I looked it up too. Cause I think he, be, he more or less says in interviews that I tracked down with him that like he, you know, they did well with the roost. It uh, sold, it played festivals. It, it got a little bit of buzz. So he was able to go to Larry and be like, hey, man, let's make another movie. And Larry's like, well, I don't have that much money. And he goes, okay, I'll just take whatever you got. So he made a movie for 10 grand. And Trigger Man, I believe, is where the roads really diverge with me and you opinion-wise because I fucking love this movie. And you texted me before I even gave you an opinion. You were like, Trigger Man is rough, bro. <laughs> I, um, this is his worst film, I think. No fucking way. Um, I, you texted me that and I was like, are you fucking kidding? And then I thought about it for like, oh, he's not kidding. Um, this movie was a slog. Um, I was not on board. I, I get him doing this like New York, like handheld thing and then getting into the woods I, I'm well, sorry, it's dude. Kelly, a, the, it's his Kelly Reichert movie. If you think about it, it's his old joy in a weird way in that it's about just these friends out in the woods bonding. One guy's going through some shit with you know a, a significant other back home who he keeps getting calls from. They're working things out together, and then all of a sudden violence explodes because there's a, an unseen sniper in the woods that starts picking them off. And that's it. Again, that's the setup. That's the movie for 77 minutes. Yeah, I think it's giving the film a little bit too much credit because I think Old Joy is a masterpiece of... And well, like, Old Joy's the better film. I'm not saying they're the same like in on a qualitative level. It's just what it made me think of. And when you actually consider that Riker was his early, one of his earliest mentors like that he would make a movie like this. Yeah, I think I mean that's that's interesting and I don't disagree with that point and we're in agreement that it's it's you know also no. the ending rules. I do like I guess I like the last like 5 minutes of the movie. Um I think that this film pushed me it pushed my patience way too far. And I was just like, I was watching the whole thing, not checking my phone, just like in game. I paused it to text you, and then I went back in. I'm going to give this film the benefit of the doubt. There's a five-minute shot of them sitting, and he's throwing rocks at his friend. 
Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I fucking hate that. It was... Okay, so here's my <laughs> other defense of the movie, too. Yeah. Is, and it's the thing that we're going to have to bring up as we go through the rest of his filmography is that he's very much one of the founding fathers of what, quote-unquote, was called the Mumblegore yes. movement. That was an offshoot of the Mumblecore movement because, you know, he's real good buddies with Joe Swanberg. Swanberg even shows up in a few of his films. And also, like, Ty West goes and acts and stuff, like Drinking Buddies. And, and, and Wingard stuff. And in Wingard stuff, like, You're Next. And Wingard, I'm glad that you brought him and Simon Barrett up. Like, they make A Horrible Way to Die with A.J. Bowen and Amy Simons, a very heavily improvised movie about alcoholism. Alcoholism, that's, you know, one big slasher film or almost like a Henry portrait of the serial, uh, portrait of a serial killer type film with A.J. Bowen as the the central uh, anti-hero, I guess we would say. So, like, Trigger Man feels like the closest cousin in his body of work to what his other buddies were doing or what these uh, other filmmakers were doing because also, like, Greta Gerwig shows up in House of the Devil. Lita Dunham shows up in a couple of his films. Yeah, Yeah, like, you know, this was all one big collective that, like, through the mid-2000s and then up through the 2010s, like, I would say about the mid-2010s, like, if you went to a film festival, there was at least one film that involved all these fucking people. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's and that's a good like point. Like you're next. Oh, that's a good point. This is like probably his most mumble gore of of yeah. of this of his films. Um I'm also just not a mumble core fan. I never really have been. And I, it, that kind of narrative 50/50 on it. Like Swanberg I hated up until the point that I didn't hate. I actually think like once he started working with Jake Johnson. Yes. Like the his I like drinking get, buddies. Yeah, drinking buddies yeah. and win it all, the movie where uh, Johnson's like a compulsive gambler in Chicago. Also a pretty damn good movie. I like all the Wingard Barrett stuff, like especially the early shit that they did together. Um, you know, the Gerwig Lena Dunham stuff. Not as big. I do like Tiny Furniture a good deal, but like, what's the one that Gerwin made? Hannah goes up the stairs, or I think Hannah so. falls down the stairs, or something involving Hannah and fucking stairs. I don't know. Hated it. Couldn't like could barely get through the movie. So like, and even like a lot of uh, Swanberg's like earliest stuff where it's just him and like a digital camera and like some girl he's trying to fuck. So he gets her to take her top off. Like, and he's shooting it on like a consumer grade camera, like silver bullets, borderline unwatchable. So like, that's with Caitlin shell and yeah. Well, yeah. And there's another Anti-West. person who would show up in a bunch of their stuff. Like she's in sacrament. Yeah. yeah Caitlin shield shows up in the sacrament and it was also in Amy Simons's. um, she dies tomorrow, mm-hmm. correct? Uh, so I mean, like, but again, this whole collective is like they became a family, and Trigger Man felt like his, let's say, membership application. It's like I'm doing that too, and they're all just really shooting on the shoestring budget, whatever they want to do. And again, by an, a DIY by any means necessary ethos that drives all of that. Uh, 20 something existential angst that's going on inside of those pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this might be one of those films that definitely is like a agree to disagree kind of thing, sure. you know, cause I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I see, but I also get too that. Like, it's not for everyone. Like I watched and I was like, you either vibe with this or you don't. Oh, I was, I was off from the beginning. I also find the lead character he were alone with for half the film, you know, 
you are. I mean, like his friends die before the midpoint. Well, here's the thing that I find interesting about the lead character is I think that it's also a key entry in West's filmography because he tells you a lot about the character without any dialogue. Like I could pick up from his tattoos that he served in the military and the way that he used the gun that he served in the military at one point. And he seems almost alienated from his other friends. Like maybe he went through some PTSD. Like there's a lot of, let's say texture and details that you can kind of dig into that he's saying without actually saying it. And I think that that's key to decoding a lot of his later output too. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I just find that lead actor, though, taking that out of it, just a charisma hole. I just was just like, yeah, Jesus Christ. Because what I was also thinking is it's like... It's a tough hang. Yeah, it's it's one of those films, too, that like, like I made... My brother and I made a film at my parents' cabin called Pine Lake Showdown. And this reminded me of that, where it was like, we each had guns... And we just walked around the woods and got in a gunfight. Like, that's what it felt like to me. Like, and I don't like to be that guy who sees modern art and says, I could have done that. This one really felt that way. It was too DIY for me to get into. Um, yeah. That's fair. Like, I had no way in. So jump ahead two years, and we actually have two Ty West movies, one of which he disowns, which is Cabin Fever 2. I only want to bring it up because of the speed bump element that it presents in his career, because... Eli Roth more or less recruited him to make the movie, at least the legend that Ty West tells, because even Ty West says, like, Eli Roth approached him, was like, hey, like, Lionsgate's looking for somebody to follow up Cabin Fever, and Ty West was like, why the fuck would I ever want to do that shit? And he's like, yeah, well, think about it. It's your foot in the door, you know, you're still early in your career, it's worth at least taking the meeting, and, like, the way that that went down is still so weird to where, like, there was a script by Adam Green yep. that was in there. I was reading up on it, too. That West didn't like. So West basically wrote his own version, shot the movie, but then they went in, and while he was even writing it, like they were basically saying, nope, can't do this, nope, can't do that, nope, can't do this. And then he f- he finished the film, but wanted an Alan Smithy cl- credit applied because they like edited it without his consent. They did reshoots uh, without They him. did yeah. reshoots without him. Like, really like backdoor bullshit, you know, from on Lionsgate's part, but he was denied taking his name off of it because he wasn't a member of the director's guild of America, I believe. But I think it just presents again, a, a case study in that like, okay, there's a guy who obviously has his own voice and his own into very much driven by his own independent spirit went to even a a mini major studio like Lionsgate, tried to apply his hand at studio filmmaking, had the worst experience ever, and then went on to make, at that point, his best movie with House of the Devil. Yeah, yeah. It's, um... I remember renting... That was another thing. I remember... I just wonder if you can have one without the other, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, it's it kind of... It's almost like, not to make it too, too fine a point, but, like, it's Dune and Blue Velvet. Sure. I mean, it's that similar kind of thing where... I hadn't thought about that until you just said that. But it's just that, like, you know, also an independent spirit like David Lynch who never lost that again. And you're given the biggest... You know, he was was up possibly for Jedi, so the the biggest franchise. And then the next biggest was Dune. De Laurentiis, one of the biggest producers. And it's, you know, kind of a nightmare. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm fucking going back to do... I'm not doing that anymore. And... You, it's it's interesting because there, there's a obviously I think the I think the budget was like a million 
for House of the Devil? 900 grand. Now, okay, so close to a million. Because in an interview for the innkeepers that I read, he made the joke to where he was like, I actually went down in budget for innkeepers because he made it for 800. Well, he says yeah. 800 in that interview. Who knows? Yeah, but it's basically, they're line. both within like 100,000 bucks of one another. But like, yet yeah, House of the Devil's still apparently under a mill. Yeah, and it's, um, to, to get back again, it's like what, what I was saying earlier. And this was a film when you're, I was 25 and you're in film school. You see this, you're like, Oh shit. Like, this is what I want to do. Like this guy's doing it. The synth score, like, you know, I talked the other night, but I had a friend who mentions like, this is one of the first like festival slow burn movies that like now is just like a lot of festivals, bread and butter movies like beach house, which is like unwatchable, but it's just like, this long, long... Oh, the eco-horror thing? I like that movie. I hated it, but it was like that long, long... The the, the kind of feeling of um, short films being stretched into features. Sure. You know, um, which a lot of times they are. It's like a short film idea, and they're like, oh, let's just have a bunch of walking around. And I think that honestly comes from House of the Devil. He does it a lot better, and it works a lot better than a lot of other filmmakers. I could do that too, Um but he kind of set the stage, I think, with that. Here's the difference between Ty West and every other filmmaker who tries to do that, though, to be quite frank. Texture. Everything in House of the Devil is immaculately textured. It's an, almost an entire 100-minute movie made of texture. There's no story to it. It's just babysitter, once apartment, gets shady babysitting gig, Satan. And devil worshippers. Yeah. That's it. There there ain't much more going on. But again, to keep with the pet theory of like, Ty West isn't very precious about story. He's more precious about style itself. Or at least the very execution of it. But like, when you watch House of the Devil, because they shot this movie in a, a little town in Connecticut and found the house, is that like, everything from like, her fuzzy little earphones to the wallpaper in the bathroom, to like Tom Noonan's strange Vincent Price cane that he's carrying around, to when they first reveal the one devil worshiper's deformed face. Like, it's all about detail and it's all about immersing you inside of this, how the, the titular house of the devil and getting you to where like, you drone with it. Like it, it just lulls you into a certain type of submission because like you can, you can reach out, you can touch the, that brass doorknob or you can smell the mustiness in the living room or like you can feel the vase crack behind her when she knocks it over, when she's dancing around to the fix. Like it's just, it's so detailed, but it also feels like the work of a guy who's just driven purely by hunger and spite. Like, he's like, I'm going to make my calling card movie now because I tried the Hollywood thing. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm just doing my own thing from here on out. Yeah, it's, it's, you texted me the other day, the texture thing, and I, I totally agree. Um, I think this viewing it took a step down for me. Um it and, stayed right at like four stars for me to where yeah. I was just like, this is fucking great. It probably went down to a three or three and a half if we're, if we're talking stars, but I also want to be fair to the film and back to what we were talking about with like the films that came after, not his films, but other films at festivals. 
now I have the hindsight of having watched a lot of shit that doesn't work in this subgenre, or I wouldn't call it genre, but just this type of low budget horror film. Just like I'm gonna tell you know, I'm gonna give you 90 minutes and nothing's gonna fucking happen. You well, know, think about how many fucking festival movies we've sat through that have Carpenter synth scores, and he was ahead of the curve because yeah. his is both a Carpenter synth score and it does like the hi hat disco thing a little bit that's going on in there. But also, like... Kind of Rosemary's Baby stringy. Yeah, too, exactly. Yeah, know. he's he's doing a Polanski thing, like, here and there. But it, it again, predicts an entire wave of movies is that we had to sh- sit through how many shitty faux grindhouse VHS knockoff things where they're putting, like, fake grain, like splices are breaking like think of how many shitty astron six movies we've sat through like the editor that even become parody movies and even something like black dynamite which i really really like like black dynamite super funny could put it on right now and i'll laugh my ass off it like take your ass back to crenshaw before i get the coat hanger and shit like that like it's just it's really good but at the same time if i put on cotton comes to harlem Still way better. I'm of the mindset that like I'd rather watch the real thing than actually watch a parody of the thing because it's way it's both just as funny and or immersive as it. But with House of the Devil, it's worth pointing out that I don't think it's an, an homage. I think it's just to, like he's making a period movie and like that's what the difference is is that these other films are trying to ape or send up or copy something that already happened and West is like no I'm just making one of those movies and that's why it's so hyper detailed and there's a difference between homage and period piece. Well it's interesting because I, and I would agree with that because I would comp- think about this film and I really do like House of the Devil. I, I mean that's this is X, I think I prefer now. I, I loved X, but like this is how could you not with all that feathered hair, man? Oh my god, well just Britney Snow, but um, oh and Greta Gerwig oh. in this, like I've always found her attractive, but never as attracted to get her Greta Gerwig as when she's drinking a giant fountain coke and just chawing on pepperoni pizza <laughs> from the Northeast, and I'm like, baby girl, you just call me and let me know when you need another slice. She is, I mean, she's actually not actually, but she's wonderful in this, and like she's very much the tone. She gets the tone. I'm not an AJ Bowie fan, but he gets the tone too. Greta Gerwig's um, 100% doing PJ Souls. Oh yeah, like that's the PJ Souls oh, character. Yeah, flipping the hair. Um, but but compare this film off of what you were just saying about these Carpenter ripoffs. Compare the mind's eye to this, oh, right? God. And any Joe Bagos movie. Yeah, and so. It, Ty West is, is a thousand times better filmmaker. Well, here, I'll, I'll take it to a movie that we both actually like to one degree or another, The Guest, which yes. is made by Wingarden Barrett and is still a very good, very entertaining movie, but has all of the things that we just described, but it's doing the homage thing instead of immersing you in it to where like when the three masks from Halloween three like show up, you're supposed to do the DiCaprio from once upon a time in Hollywood and be like, I get it. It's there. And it's like where this is just like, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to just drone out to it and be like, Oh yeah, this is just vibe central, you know? Yeah. It's not the, um, he's not elbowing. He's not in the theater elbowing. Hey, do you get, yeah. do you get it? Do you get it? Which I, which I totally agree with. And I think he has other things on his mind or think about this. And I, you know, while your next doesn't take place in the past does also feel like a throwback kind of film, but really lacks the texture you're talking about. 
I mean, it feels, sure. I mean, as a filmmaker, it feels more broad. Um, the, the details fall out. There's way too many characters. There's more action and gore than you get in a Ty West film generally. Also has a terrible performance from Ty West. He, he's horrible. He in can't it. even act like look out of a window effectively and he gets shot in the eye and you're like, Oh, thank God he's not in the movie anymore. My favorite Ty West performance is making me somehow believe that he had sex with Olivia Wilde and drinking buddies. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, right. And I watched that. I was like, mm, 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 mm. I was like, that's just, that's not it. No. You look like my cousin from Slower <laughs> Delaware, son. Yeah, not a bad looking guy. I'm just saying, come on, let's let's fucking yeah. you know, but you're friends with, with Swalberg. But you can you <laughs> you know you can you compare it you compare it to those films. I love I love your getting at that of like referentiality versus I'm just making that film. Pure creation in you, a way. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to go too far with this, but like you think about the detail that like Spielberg gave to like Raiders, where right. it's referencing. That's actually a great like reference point. But he actually has made one of those movies. Like it's, and there's not referencing anything in particular. It's just like, this is the feel, you know, and again, pre, you know, getting ahead of the curve of what they tried to do with the grindhouse movies where it's like their, their whole point, the grindhouse grindhouse, like, like uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino of, we're going to give you the movie, the, the poster promised. We're going to make one of those movies, you know? And I felt this is also like, you're getting that experience. This actually, you know, rewatching this reminded me a lot of the silent scream with Rebecca Balding. Oh, I like that movie. And a I, lot. I do too. I actually just rewatched it. Not for this podcast. I just, I put it on as I love Rebecca. Balding is my number one of all time. She's so cute. Cause I love the boogans. Very similar. A lot of walking around the house, a lot of like the, the texture of like that seaside, manner right you know with a kind of hitchcockian thing going on there and the people in the attic so very similar i wouldn't be surprised if he had seen that film and had at least pop in the back of his head it has that not quite a slasher more of that kind of moody he seems quite cinema literate yes too. absolutely but the other thing i do want to bring up with west too and particularly house of the devil in his next film the innkeepers is you know a lot of people and you even during this podcast have referred to it this way and and it's one thing that I don't 100% agree with particularly on this round of rewatches is the idea of the slow burn now I'm not saying that these movies aren't slow or <laughs> deliberately paced they very much are that's the hallmark of his work what I think that he's doing though is again it's a, it's an idea of immersion is that I found a quote from him where he was like, you ever think about what happens before a home invasion or like what you're actually doing? Is that like, it's not anything dramatic. You're probably just on your computer or you're making coffee or something and somebody bursts in and then all of a sudden a home invasion is happening. And I applied that mindset to a lot of his slower films like House of the Devil, Innkeepers, uh, the Sacrament, or even his VHS entry, uh, Second Honeymoon. Yeah, with Swanberg. Yeah, with Swanberg <laughs> again. But, like, the idea that, like, he's getting you inside of these people's lives that are then interrupted. And that seems to be his big thing, is that he's just as interested in building these characters and letting you have a relationship, or at least... And understanding of where they come from. That's why I really like Trigger Man is that like he lets you spend all this time with these guys. Because think about the first time that somebody shot Trigger Man. It comes literally out of nowhere. And like they're in, like I think the guy's even in mid-sentence talking yep. about something mundane. He's going to pee. Then, 
Yeah, and he's taking a piss, and then a, a, a bullet flies in and just knocks his fucking head off. And, like, that to me is one of the great visual representations of what Ty West's movies or how they operate is that it's getting you inside of his characters lives having you understand them empathize with them you know really almost like wear their clothes with them and then he interrupts it with horror and I think that's an interesting way of telling a story because with the innkeepers his next film it's as much if not more a workplace comedy as it is a ghost story. Yeah. Should we move on to Innkeepers? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting way of looking. And my for all these films, um, I, I get where you're coming from and I don't disagree. Um, I don't think, though, it, it is there more in the filmmaking level and less is on the directing level and less on the, the screenwriting level. Where so in, sure, in, 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 I think that's the the idea, and I think that's going to be the the tough hang portion of it is that if you're either you either vibe with it and you're on board with how he's telling the story or you're just bored by it and like that's the the tightrope that he's walking because again if you're not going to be pretentious about story but pretentious about craft that person better be real fucking invested in your craft or you're going to lose them entirely yeah yeah because we and and Real quick about House of the Devil, because you were saying, like, this is a film that's all texture with a very simple story of, like, girl gets babysitting thing, job to get a get an apartment to get away from her shitty roommate, and then it's just, like, you know, narrative-wise, walking around a house for 40 minutes. Right. But, you know, and I think that... It's almost as if there was just one babysitter in Halloween, and you just hung out... Right. ...with well, Laurie it, the whole it time. It feels like some of the moment... It, the, the moment of Laurie... Um, grabbing the keys and going across to investigate, it's that for 40 minutes. Right, without exactly. seeing Michael Myers, right? That's I, I would agree with that. And even the way she's dressed, very final girl from the beginning of the blouse and you know, the the um sorry, uh flannel shirt. And right. mm, Jocelyn Donahue. I, I think she's gorgeous. Um and really and very charismatic. Um the thing is, like you're kind of talking about two different things here. We have one where it's just this very this is an experiential visual thing of like, this is just the babysitter. Like we don't know much more about her beyond that. Right. So like you say, you're vibing with it, it you know, it's sort of a, a little, a little bit, but she's got a shitty roommate. She has a good best friend. She wants to be out and be independent. She's willing to work for it. I don't know if these aren't elemental traits of a human being though. Well, they are, but I mean like there's not a lot of depth because you're like, I was saying back to your point earlier saying like, it's a simple idea, sure. you know, like, so there's not a lot there, there of complexity versus innkeepers to move to innkeepers is a much more complex character interaction piece of these two, these two people you said, like a, like a workplace romantic comedy, you might say, you know, of them, there's definitely flirtation there, and he's got a crush on her, obviously. It almost feels like a BBC sitcom. Like, almost something yeah. like the IT crowd. Or, or some or, early Simon Pegg stuff. Exactly. Like, like oh, Spaced is yeah, actually space. a great jump-off. Yeah. Is that, like, yeah, it feels like that to where you just have these two slacker losers with Pat Healy and Sarah Paxton, who are also quite great in Cheap Thrills together, too. Yeah. Uh, but, like... You just hang out with them at the Yankee Peddler, this old New England hotel in Connecticut. 
during the final weekend while they you know are investigating the possible uh, occurrence of a ghost, let's say, or an EVP, they call it. Yeah, it's um, but this one is much more intricate with character stuff because, and it's smart of him because the the texture of the the eighties slasher house gives you a lot more to work with than I think the Yankee Peddler. Um, it's definitely a blanker canvas. Uh, it's just also not as good of a set, I think, as as the house. Um, well, it's not a set. That's what I mean. A location, Sorry. like because you know the story behind Innkeepers, right? What is it? So Yankee Peddler is an actual hotel that West and his crew and cast all stayed in while filming House of the Devil. Oh, no way. And they they actually claim to have experienced some goofy things that happened. And like he, he describes it as that he wanted to make a workplace comedy about it is because he was like, it was really strange. It was this old antiquated hotel that was obviously kind of like a historical landmark, had some like ghostly uh, stories and lore that followed it around, but it was all staffed by 20 somethings or like 19 and 20 somethings, uh, working for minimum wage and like bouncing off of each other, being slackers and not knowing what their next uh, move in life is. Because he was like, what if you just basically made like haunted clerks almost? So he wrote the movie, contacted his producer, Peter Falk, I believe it was. And said, like, oh, if, if we get in contact with the Yankee Peddler people when they were done uh, House of the Devil and they say, hey, you can shoot here, we'll do it. But if they say no, then, you know, we're without a movie. But they just happen to say, like, yeah, this is cool. Like, you can shoot here. So that's how the innkeepers came about. They shot it in the hotel that they thought was haunted that they stayed at while they shot a whole other movie before it. I like that. I did not know that. That is very cool. Um, but... But again, it is it is a film that I think, from a screen screenwriter perspective, is much more intricate with character stuff than a lot of other stuff. Where it is like you get a lot of feeling of okay, like you said, very clerks of like I don't know what to do with my life. Like she definitely feels stuck. They're connecting her to the ghost of how horrible to be stuck in this place. I feel stuck in this place. Meeting Kelly McGillis, who plays this actress slash kind of medium, who is saying kind of condescendingly to her, like, what are you going to do with your life? And so like, it's much more like, I, I agree. It has that like Richard Linklater, Kevin Smith, like what next kind of vibe. Let's compare it more to Linklater than Smith because fuck Kevin Smith. Yeah. And I think, I know I'm sorry I brought that up. Um, but you brought clerks up, but that's I, fair. I think that, I mean, it's the most obvious yeah. reference point because they literally are hotel clerks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the first time I saw this was a big letdown for me, which was like right at right at camp, the day it came out again, because I had been so blown away by um, House of the Devil, right? And I, which is much more of a horror film, I think, than uh, than Innkeepers is. You know, sure. um, like you said, Innkeepers has this like, like very backloaded horror. You know, I mean, like the very very. It's end. almost just the last fifteen minutes. It's crazy. If that. if that, and honestly, this okay. So let's just say it here. This is where I personally get off of the Ty West like bandwagon with the, with the critical consensus because this movie's pretty widely beloved by uh, horror fans and even critics in general because they really like. And to be fair, like Pat Healy's great in it, Sarah Paxson's great in it. The setting is amazing on a craft level. Again, yeah, looks fantastic. It's very cute. 
all of the sound design, which we haven't even brought up, Graham Resnick yeah. yet, who does all the stuff, and it was like Ty West's like childhood friend who they were like fucking around and making home movies together and just coming up with the weirdest sounds they could come up with. Like he's worked on all of his films from that point forward, and a lot of video game stuff too, and a lot of video game stuff, Until and even Dawn. his own movies. Mm-hmm. And that one, I can't remember what the haunted record. Uh, oh, Dead Wax. Yeah, Dead Wax that he made for Shudder. Yep. But like, also, incredibly talented guy. It's just like Glenn McQuaid, who was the effects guy, who worked on a bunch of his stuff too and went on to make like I Sell the Dead. Uh, he's only really worked with like two cinematographers and ever and also like shot his own movie with Trigger Man. Because that's the other thing about West is that he works with the same people over and over again. Larry Fessenden always, almost always shows up in a weird like cameo in one of his movies. He has the same cop yep. show up I saw a that. couple times. Yeah. Roost and Innkeepers. Yeah, Roost yeah. Innkeepers. Um, so like he's very much like not only a self-referential guy, but he's a familial guy, just in the same way, again, that he worked with all the Mumblecore kind of group over and over and over again. He clearly, it was like, I found the people who are my people and we're going to make shit together. And that's just how it's going to be. And I don't want to venture outside of this family. Again, for better or worse. Yeah, so you're saying that Innkeepers is where you are not. Well, I get off the the, the train because I'm just like, I like all the craft stuff again because the sound design, the cinematography, all looks great. But like, this just doesn't work. Like, the the workplace comedy stuff is cool, but once it turns into a horror movie, it gives in because another one of his trademarks is that his movies abruptly end. Yes. And like, he does have some epilogues on them. Like, he has a very short epilogue on house of the devil. He has the epilogue obviously on the roost with the, the bookends. And here he even has, because this movie's broken up into very old fashioned, uh, ghost story Chapter. chapters and everything. And even has a chapter called epilogue at the end with a, uh, shining esque, uh, stinger, let's say, but like the actual horror stuff here, when it almost feels like it forgot, that it needs to be a horror film too. And he got so wrapped up in the idea of making this workplace comedy that he was like, Oh shit, that's right. I got to tell the tale of was it Margaret O'Malley. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good point. And I, yeah, I'm not a fan of this one. Um, there's something, I think it need to be more of a comedy. If it's going to be a comedy, I think more because more of a horror film was going to be a horror film. And because regardless of like, or at least it had to do something more with their relationship because like it starts leaning into Pat Healy being, because it's obviously playing on the idea of like Sarah Paxson's very young and mousy and, and goofy and is trying to figure out where her life's going. Pat Healy feels more like, a mid 30 something like burnout who's seen some shit, worked some shitty jobs. And this is just a place where he's gotten comfortable and doesn't really need to do anything else. He obviously has kind of a crush on her the entire time. And like he starts edging towards maybe being a little creepy with her by the end. But like, again, it doesn't really resolve any of that because of the horror stuff almost literally comes crashing into the workplace comedy and the two vibes. It's the one time where he just doesn't nail it for me. So I I guess this is one where I totally see eye to eye with you and get where it's like you either vibe with it or you don't because I, I don't vibe with it either. Yeah, it's very and also it's 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 really low key. A lot of his yeah, stuff real is low it's, key. it's so low key and like 
Um, I like Pat Healy in a lot of independent stuff, and like from you explain, I have a lot of other friends who've worked with him who say he's like the coolest fucking guy to work. Incredibly with. nice guy. Like my friend worked on him on, a, on a western. He was like, he's the coolest guy. Like they were like, let's put him in a movie. Like he's just down. You know? Yeah. He's just he's like very like like a I, team player. I I met and drank with him a bunch of times at like Fantastic Fest because like he'll just like be there to promote a movie or something. And then we'll just be like, well, I'm staying all week. Cause I just want to watch all these cool ass movies and get fucking drunk with all y'all. Yeah. He's very, he's very likable on this one, but it's, um, it's one of those things too, where if you're going to put horror into a comedy, it might even need to be a horror comedy, you know, like where it's like, you want the horror. It has to be peppered a little better. Yeah. And, and like, and put in versus like, you know, house of the devil is like, while a lot of the horror is still backloaded, it is of a tone that works through the entire thing. It's like a good bolognese it's a, sauce. Oh, it's a Gucci. You gotta just <laughs> pepper the <thing> in. <laughs> Should we uh, move on to Sacrament? Sure. Um, what do you think of this? We actually haven't talked about this movie at all. I just watched it today. First time? Uh, no, no, no. Oh, I sorry, saw it at yeah. Fantastic Fest in 2013 when it played. I believe that was the Lake Line year when they held it. Um, I still really like this. I think... Here's my thing with it, is that it has another title card, a lot like House of the Devil with the satanic panic stuff, is that it starts because it's all a play on Vice Media. Yeah. And, and a it's actually Vice Vice. It's crazy. And it is like they, sponsored they by Vice. Rights, like, yeah. yeah. Um, and like Eli Roth comes back and produces it for Ty West, and Ty West credits a lot of this movie existing to Eli Roth. And this was the same year that Eli Roth brought... <laughs> Um, Green Inferno. Green Inferno to Fantastic Fest as a secret screening too. And that movie sucks. But does something kind of similar in that it's it's playing on almost like, how do I put this in a nice way? Um, the activist millennial or the activist like, yeah. because like. As the right would say, SJWs. It, it takes, right. but it takes two different viewpoints. Where Eli Roth's Green Inferno is very much making fun of those types of people and punishing them by putting them in the middle of like a cannibal movie and having them literally eaten for yeah. their their weird beliefs and stuff. This is almost like the the uh, hipster journalists are the heroes of it, but where I was going with it originally with the title card is that it talks about immersionism in journalism and how you immerse yourself in a world to really get the feel of it and understand it. And that to me feels like Ty West putting a name to his type of filmmaking is that he's literally saying, this is the definition of the film that I actually make for you and have made my entire career is that I put you in these worlds and I put you in these characters' lives and you just live it with them. Only here, the mundane is kind of pushed aside because it literally starts with A.J. Bowen addressing the camera being like, here's what's happened. So like this guy, his sister, in a cult. Don't know why. We're going to go find this cult. We're going to find out what's going on with it. And they travel to it. And it's almost like revisionist history to one degree or another because it feels like Jonestown doesn't fucking exist it's in this timeline. I want to get to that. Um, but like they go to his version of uh, Jonestown, which is Eden Parish, mm-hmm. I believe. And there it's, it is – it's Guryana. Like that's, that's what the cult is that he's there. And it's led – 
by all of these underprivileged people who sold all their belongings along with like drug addicts and stuff. And they built this colony more or less as slavery labor for this Jim Jones type figure. And they all believe in him and they, they've given themselves over to the, the uh, vision of father and stuff. And the, the journalists who are AJ Bowen, uh, John, Joe Swanberg and Kentucker Audley. Yeah. What a name. Hell of a name. (laughs) Like, <laughs> should either be name. like a, yeah, like he should be drinking whiskey in a cabin somewhere. He doesn't look like that. He looks like a fashion photographer. But like, and I think he's even playing yes, he in is, this yeah. movie. But like, you know, they get there and they're like, this is fucked up. And it's weird though, because, and this I think is the where you're going with the whole, I want to talk about that, is that like, it almost feels like the characters know about Jonestown like happening before, despite it not happening on this historical timeline. Like that's my only nitpick with the film. My, I have a couple nitpicks. Um, let me just list them out for you. So I saw the premiere, one of the, one of the premieres of this, um, at the Atlanta film fest. It was, it okay. came there. It was probably after fantastic fest, but it was the spring is April of 2014 or whatever. And so, and I was still on Ty West. I'm like, Oh cool. The new Ty West film. I saw a double feature with that and lock. With uh, fucking Tom Hardy. Um, at oh, God. Movie. I haven't thought about that movie in forever. And it's really good. I love Locke. Well, Stephen, it's awesome. It's, yeah. it's, it's so good. But I just watched Eastern Promises oh. for Cronenberg's birthday last week. And like... Chef's hmm. Kiss. Yeah. Um, did I Real quick. Did I ever tell you? So I was teaching a, a class on phenomenology for like when I was a grad student. No. And my, to open the presentation for all these undergrad students, I just played the entire shower room fight from Eastern Promises and just stood back and crossed my arms and watched them all watch the scene. And Jesus. I was like, and I was then I paused, all right, so let's get started here. And I, it was great. It was How great. big is Vigo's cock? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so that'll be the first question <laughs> on your pop quiz tomorrow. <laughs> A couple of problems I have with this film, and I don't dislike it completely. Um, I quite like it. Yeah, I, I'll say I liked it better this time um, because this is his found footage movie, which is funny because you were sort you of you know you're saying earlier that like he kind of predicted the found footage thing with Roost, and this one feels a little late to the party um, to me. Yeah, because it's like found footage is, is running out of gas, and he instead makes. More or less a mockumentary. Yeah, a mockumentary or like a, a cannibal holocaust feel of like we're sure. You know, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, it's actual news people. The problem is like his version of a Reen Cardonia movie. Yes, yes. And what's what's doesn't work for me is I don't think he. It's one of the problems I, I used to love found footage and now I just really don't anymore. It's like we got to keep filming. People want to know how this all went down. There's a lot of instances of that of like Joe Swanberg yes. just putting the camera down, perfectly framed, mind when you. When he's under the bed and he like turns it around, yes. it's like that one is a like kind of like all right. So here's where I think. Okay, so I had this thought too, and here's where I think you can explain it away: is that that's these guys' job. Like they're supposed to get all this footage because they're even constantly saying, "Oh, I need you to get a shot of that." Oh, make sure that we get a shot of this. Oh, I need you talking in front of there. I don't, and like he goes out of his way to even say too, like, oh, I'll change the SD card so that we can keep rolling and stuff. Right. So like. But that's a different, ah. in this situation, people have just drank fucking Kool-Aid and they're dying. They're not expecting to get out. This this is a moment in the film. This is the moment in every found footage film where it doesn't make sense, where it's like, if you are an actual danger like, you were not going to turn your camera around to get a good shot of the guy with the machine gun is walking in to murder you. Well, like, there's also... Okay, so there's one particular shot in this movie, and it's a hell of a shot, but it also 
breaks from the reality of the picture itself in that there's the first interview because this movie is broken up into chapters a lot the same way that the innkeepers is too in the way that he structures the the quote-unquote mockumentary version of it because we're almost like watching the film after they've escaped and it's been assembled Mm -hmm. like you said kind of a cannibal holocaust thing which uh, I think also you can argue take some of the suspense away out of it. Like you don't know who's going to die. Obviously some people are, but obviously some people escape as well. But my thing is that it's like there's a moment where they have the interview and then they do the concert and then the little girl comes out and slips them the note that's like, please help us. And then the camera goes back and it's like swirling around all the parishioners while like after the concert, they're like in hands, almost like speaking in tongues. And it's an incredibly haunting, well-lit moment of cinema. But the whole time I went, who the fuck is behind the camera? Like the he, Joe Swanberg certainly isn't doing this Stanley Kubrick ass shit. Like that's crazy. Like somebody wouldn't look up and be like, why are you filming us during this time of worship? And there's a lot of, the, there's my biggest nitpick with it is that like, even when they first get there, they're confronted by fucking hired mercenary gunmen with fucking machine guns who are like, you can't film here. They're like, yeah, 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 no, that's cool. You can't film here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all it takes is Amy times to come along and be like yeah sure it's okay i'd be like they would never fucking get those cameras past those guys they would shoot them and dig a ditch and put that camera in it with their bodies alongside of it yes um another nitpick i had to the point of the joan the jonestown stuff and i get your point completely of like in this world it must not exist or it exists they're ignoring it my problem is it's just jonestown like, yeah. it, so I've watched a lot of documentaries and there's like a whole class on cults, which obviously, and more things have happened since there. Cause you have like heaven's gate, which is a mass suicide. So like, but this is literally these instances occur, but they also go like, Oh, this is like Jonestown. This never does that. <laughs> yeah. It's in it. But it's also weird that for me though, regardless of that point, it's just that like, they just did Jonestown again in the movie. Right. And for me, like just nobody for, remembered Jonestown, not even the documentary crew. Like these, these underprivileged people were like, ah, I guess we have no sense of history here. Right. Well, I'm just talking about it from the filmmaking perspective. Like yeah. he made Jonestown, like Ty right. West made a Jonestown movie and didn't change basically anything. Right. And which we've already seen twice because you have the one powers booth movie. Yeah. Uh, a couple other made, TV movies. And then the, the Reen Cardonia movie, uh, Guyana, uh, cold of the damned. Yeah. And, and, and some great documentaries some amazing yeah, yeah, exactly. documentaries and so like for me actually some of the some of the reviews i read of the film had a problem with the film they said this is just doing that with no regard my problem is not a moral problem my problem is okay what else do you what else like i wanted another layer for him to add to this to make it his story and not just to do Here's the thing, Jonestown. though. Isn't that the Ty West way? To be 100% honest, like, there's nothing unique about the Babysitter movie that he made. Like in- The horror's he- not that unique. Yeah, like, The Innkeepers is probably the most unique movie he made just because of the structure itself that you can point to. But, like, that's just the Ty West thing. Like, he's not just approaching a mode of filmmaking. He's just, like, his his movies are almost like, okay, you've seen the Babysitter movie. This is my version of it. 
you've seen the the animals attack zombie type movie, like midnight movie. The Roost is my version of that. This just feels like him being like, you know what fucking Jonestown is. This is my version of Jonestown. So like that's kind of his thing. That I get that, but it doesn't work for me. Sure. Um, my third nitpick is AJ Bowen. So <laughs> are you gonna do your AJ Bowen tirade? Yeah. Um, I have to do this. So it I, I'm sure he's I've seen I've so he was in he was in the signal and um was one of his first big things in 07. And that was Atlanta. That was one of Atlanta's first films. That's where like Bruckner and those guys came from. And yeah. Bruckner's on his way to, you know, Hellraiser comes out soon, which I'm super excited for. And he's I think a, a, one of the best filmmakers of that. Also, the part that he's kind of in that VHS crowd too. He wasn't part well, of their he was crew. In You're next, and a horrible way to die. And like Bruckner was no, no. Oh, I'm sorry, AJ Bowen. Yeah, sorry, yeah. But, but so yeah, Bowen was in all that stuff. He's in. But the Bruckner's gr- part of the crowd you're talking about yeah. too, just on the filmmaking side. Exactly. Of it, yeah. um, but I remember I was it was South by Southwest. Doesn't my first year there? Oh, here comes a Martin Vendetta. And two things happen. And I'm sure he's a very nice guy. He didn't do anything to me, but he was, first of all, they had those damn intro things for the movies where he's like, would you rather have hot dogs for fingers or hamburgers for feet? Oh yeah. And it was him and a couple of, and Ty West was in one. It was in Mickey, Mickey Keating was that whole crew. And it was the most annoying. I had to watch him say, do you want them, um, uh, hot dogs for fingers or, uh, hamburgers for feet? And I had to hear him say it a fucking 50 fucking times. I was like, I don't like this guy anymore. And then <laughs> I'm walking out of a, I'm walking out of the ge- I'm walking out of the guest premiere. And I'm upstairs at the stateside. And I'm walking down and I see AJ Bowen. And in my mind, I go, man, that fucking guy. And I twist my ankle because he was walking by. It's totally his fault. <laughs> and so literally. From that point on, I really don't hate AJ Bowen, but it's become this thing in my head. When he's in a movie, I'm I'm out of it. It takes me out of the movie because I just have this like extra textural relationship with like, oh fuck. I've always really liked him. Uh, as I've heard an, he's a very nice guy too. Yeah, I've met him a couple times. Very nice guy, but I've always really liked him as a performer. I don't think he has a ton of range. He almost has a very gold bloomy, mumbly idiosyncratic sort of delivery that I, I find kind of delightful at times, especially with when he's the shitty boyfriend in your next, like yeah. that whole car ride in. And then the, the end where he's like trying to basically like barter with her, like, Hey, you know, we're going to be rich. That's, you know, this will be all right. And like, and a horrible way to die. I actually think he's quite, quite good in, but yeah, like I get it. He's, he's not the greatest actor in the world, but I think he serves the material well when he's asked to apply himself, yeah. I'll tell you who does fucking crush this goddamn movie. Two people. I think Swanberg's he's great. quite good in it. He's, he's really very good. charismatic. He has some of the better moments in it because like that first moment where they're like going through and like, uh, AJ Bowen interviews him and goes, what do you think of all this? And he goes, honestly, it's kind of really impressive, especially when you consider they're all like drug addicts and, and, uh, underprivileged people and stuff. And like they came together and they built this thing. On the other hand, he kind of conned them into selling all their worldly possessions. And I don't know how I feel about that. Like he just kind of does that thing where he's like, I don't know, but he's really, really good in this and gets to do sort of a hero role that you'd never really see Joan Swan, Joe Swanberg do because like there's another performance in your next 
that I quite like him as the turtleneck wearing, like douchey older brother the entire time who's jabbing AJ Bowen for the entire picture. Like he's so fucking good in that because he's the epitome of like waspy smarm. Yeah. In that film. But the other guy who fucking crushes this goddamn film is Gene Jones as father. Like, who most people know as the stuttering cashier who's uh, menaced by Anton Sugar in No Country for Old Men. Like, that's the only thing that I knew this guy from. And then he shows up basically doing um, Jim Jones. And you're like, oh, wow. He's incredible. Like he's really charismatic. He's and then he'll very turn sweet. on a dime to like menacing with without a, a moment's notice. His death scene is horrific. Like he's really fucking good in this. And Emmy Simmons is is always good. Yeah, like, Simmons is one of the most reliable artists of her de- like generation. Well, and and so that brings me to a point. And again, uh, AJ Bone, if you ever hear this, I don't dislike you. Um, it's just a funny thing that I think you're very handsome, AJ. Yeah, no, it's just like stuck in my head, and it, you know, I hope we can meet one day and, and just put all this behind me. Uh, <laughs> all you have to do is jerk Martin off, and you're fine. <laughs> I'm thinking a real apology here, Jacob. Um, <laughs> but I think t- to give Bowen some credit his acting style is not realistic. Like you were saying the Goldblum thing, he has this kind of affected style. I think he, I think he morphs it for this movie better than you're giving him credit for better than usual. But compared to Swanberg and Amy, no, I think sure. cause like Swanberg, I, that's the thing I was watching this time. And cause I've always liked his, I mean, I've liked him as a performer, especially like you were saying in your next, even though I'm like, dude, this is their director buddy. I'm never like taken out of the movie by that. I'm like, and, and, and he's also great in um, second honeymoon, you know, even in like the short thing for VHS, you know what else he was really good in beating the shit out of Devin Faraci at fantastic fest. Was that a fight? Yeah, when he when he knocked him out in the ring at fucking oh I didn't know that was the fantastic debates. Yeah, because Ty West trained him. He was his because West, West, West fought too. Yeah, West he fought Lee is like a yeah. Uh, well, and he has like an MMA background with like his training and stuff, but he trained Swanberg and Swanberg knocked the fuck out of Devin. Oh, that is great. Um, but, but Swanberg, you were saying like there's that moment and there's another moment when they get the letter from father and he turned, they put the camera on the table and they're reading it and it's just Swanberg reacting. And he's just like, he feels like a very New York, like, um, actor who gets like how to get yeah. into the role and, and, and Simon's as well. AJ, again, it might be just me bringing my other stuff of just like always him standing out to me. That ankle always throbs whenever yeah. AJ Bowen's on screen. Actually, my ankle does hurt right now for other reasons. <laughs> I think I heard it at South by. I always heard it at South by. Um, but the weather changes, you think of AJ Bowen. Yeah, but AJ. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I get, this is. If we were ranking his movies, the sacrament's going to be towards the bottom for me, but I still find it immensely enjoyable. I love Tyler Bates's score. It's good. It's really ominous and foreboding. Um, I like all the performances. I think his slow burn style, as you put it, like is applied possibly the best here. Like yeah, it he works. finds the format that actually works for it the best because you're building your building. And I think it has a bit of a Titanic thing going for it because we, even if we're on a different timeline and perhaps Jonestown didn't occur in this in our multiverse world. dimension, wherever we are, like we as audience members 
know what Jonestown is. So we know how this fucking ends. It's almost like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too, in that it's like, okay, how, is he going to just do the murders? Is he going to just do the cult suicide here? Or are these guys going to save the day? Like, what's happening? But no, we just get a mass suicide. And I mean, like, West, to his credit, and he he uh, does this in all of his films. It's one of the things that I love about him. He does not flinch. Like when he's ready to fuck. Yeah. The baby's the most horrific image in this entire movie where they put a syringe of poison juice into its mouth and you just hear it start to gurgle. You're like, Oh my God. But like he, like when that mass suicide occurs, he fucking commits because then he has the dude, those aforementioned mercenaries start machine gunning people and shit. Like it's really intense and unpleasant. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you want to talk about In the Valley of Violence real quick before we get to X? Yeah. Because I got all this bottled up love for X that we got to get out. So, In the Valley of Violence. Yeah, so... um, We both saw it at South By again. Yeah, so this film I remember for a different reason. This is the time that I saw Ethan Hawke's penis. Yes, the infamous you saw Ethan Hawke's hog story. Go. Yeah, so... um, Because there's nothing really... We both like In the... Valley of Violence. I don't think there's a whole lot here to talk about with it just because we were mostly covering his horror stuff. We like it. It's his day of anger, kind of like his John Wick thing where like dog gets killed, Ethan Hawke rolls in, John Travolta's doing some mega shit, and then James Ransone. We're split on. Yeah. I like James Ransone as the shitty uh, kind of bumbling asshole son. You do not. Uh, Ziggy from the from Baltimore. I love gets him. a zero from you. And but this I love movie. him. He's like one of my favorite characters in The Wire. Season two is my favorite season. So maybe I just like expect too much from him. Racism, um, but okay. But uh, I think that. So I'm, I'm at I'm at the stateside. The premiere of the movie. I was there. It's when I interviewed Ty West. The, I interviewed him the next. We're day. talking dongs now, right? Yeah, talking okay. dongs. So same staircase where I twisted my ankle. Uh, looking at AJ Bowen, but what a fateful uh, set of stairs. It was literally the same spot. And then, so I'm walking up the stairs after the movie and I'm walking next to Ethan Hawke and he's got, he's just like super fucking nice guys. Turns out, Hey, nice work. He goes, Oh, thanks man. It's like (laughs) very authentic. Oh yeah, man. When I interviewed him for first reformed with Paul Schrader, like he was so incredibly thoughtful and kind the entire time. Like, like actually, you know, because you've interviewed famous people and filmmakers and stuff before. And like, you could always tell the difference between the guys who are actually engaging with your, your questions and the ones who are just kind of giving you canned bullshit the entire time. Like Hawk would actually stop, think about it and be like, man, I don't know. Cause I remember asking him like, why he wanted to do first reformed. And he was like, Oh, cause I always wanted to play a priest. And I went, okay, why did you always want to play a priest? And he like stopped. And he went, Oh, and like thought about it for a second. It actually gave me a very long drawn out, thoughtful answer. And I was like, Oh shit, this guy's like on the level, man. But anyway, back to his dick. Yes. So we're walking up the stairs and like, it was like, like, nice work, man. And he goes, oh, thanks dude. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually interviewing the director, Ty Western. And he goes, Oh dude, tell him, you know, that's, that's so cool. Like, Tell myself what's up. I don't see him again tonight. I'm like, all right. So we get to like the bathroom is already aligned to the upstairs bathroom. And so we're just kind of spacing, exchanging pleasantries. And then fucking Jason Blum walks up behind him <laughs> who produced value violence. Oh, and, did Blum do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember that part. Yes, yeah, so there was, it was a Blum production. And so I have not watched it since the festival. I again, remember liking it, but 
not a whole lot. Yeah, I watched it two days ago, um, which I hadn't seen since the fest. So we're in line and like great title sequence of memory serves. Yes, like very, very Django. Yeah, and so we're sitting there talking and. Like I said, oh, my friend used to work for you, Mr. Blum. And he goes, oh, how's he doing? It was just like a nice conversation. And then it was like the perfect time to end it. It was like, you know, when you're at a good point with, especially a celebrity, you're like, dude, if I end it now, like I have done so well, you know? And so you do the good George Costanza exit. Yeah. You're just like, I, I'm, I'm here. I found the spot. I'm going to get out. So we're we going to the bathroom and I, I get stage fright. I hate standing next to a bunch of dudes at the urinal. I want to wait for like a stall. And so Ethan Hawke's behind me and I'm like, after you, he goes, no, 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 no. After you, I'm like, God damn it. So I have to go stand. <laughs> so I go and I'm standing up at the stall and uh, or at the, at the urinal and he walks up right next to me and I'm like, all right, man, like just, just I'm going to pee. I, I, I definitely got stage for, I got Ethan Hawke. Act normal. Me. Act yeah, normal. Just do not fuck this up. Don't and, look at his dick. And then he just turns to me and goes, so what, you, what else are you working on? And I'm like, God damn it. Like, and so I look over at it and I'm six, seven, I'm tall. So I can see down in my peripheral. I see the whole fucking thing. And he's doing well for himself. Yeah. Ethan Hawke's packing heat. Damn. And um, I mean, I believe it. No, yeah. And so I just like finished my pee, zipped up, and then I called my mom and said, I saw Ethan Hawke's dick. Like, I imagine Uma Thurman has a long vagina. So yeah. you need a big dick. <laughs> to quote Kirby Enthusiasm, huge vagina. Huge vagina. Um, but there's something I want to talk about. Um, with I was. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Body violence to, to just segue so quickly over into the actual movie is. I was just going to segue into X because we were talking about dicks, but you keep going. Well, I know we want to kind of get quickly to X, you know, but one of the things when I interviewed him for this film was just, of course, like asking, like, okay, why do you want to do a Western? Like, you're kind of a horror guy. The cl- Everyone was asking the same question, but I wanted to hear his his my version of that. And he brings up a lot that he doesn't consider himself a horror guy. Right. And he said that he's, he said he likes genre. He likes genre expectations. He likes defying expectations. So a big piece of this film, um, is of value of violence is giving you a Western. And like you said, it is that kind of like, um, day of revenge kind of John wick thing, but with a really weird tone to it, because like, especially John Travolta is not the big bad guy. He's a kind of bumbling sheriff, or the sheriff who's like, I don't want to fight anybody. Like, let's just not fight. I don't want to fuck with this today. He and almost feels like he's playing like an E.G. Marshall character. In yeah, a way. V- very much so. Or and then you have like this character named Tubby who's like, my name's Lawrence. And there's all these asides. And there's like... And it is a pretty funny movie. Yeah, it is, and, it, and of course, Fessin's in it. Fessin is in it having a good time. And so like, there's... He talked about... He's interested in, in genre, you know... Uh, the formula of genre and like how he wants to kind of push against it sometimes. And I wanted to say that because I think that applies very well to what he did with X. And when he was in, when he was interviewed after when he was in the Q and a after the, the screening, you know, he said, I wanted people to go in expecting basically Texas chainsaw. The trailer sells you Texas chainsaw. And then to be like, I'm not quite sure where this is going. And so he likes to take at the same time of on one hand, we were saying he likes to just kind of do, all right, this is the babysitter in the house. This one feels like it has a more unique set of killers that I haven't really seen before. It's playing with the Texas Chainsaw Crazy family on the, the deserted road, but it's doing it in a kind of different tone and different way. Sure. So you just want to dive into X well, next? Yeah, I want to go right next. Let's do it. Yeah. All right.
talking about Ty West's ex. So, Martin, South by Southwest, how did this play with the crowd? It played marvelously. I, I mean, imagine, like, because I watched it by myself with one other dude in the theater, and, like, I was hooting and hollering with just, like, my big Diet Pepsi and my small popcorn. Like, I was wishing the entire time that I wasn't at, like, a 12-20 screening and was watching it with a packed elbow-to-elbow house. It fucking, like, the audience lost their shit. In South By, when it comes to a place to watch the premiere of a horror film, like, there aren't a lot of places that equal it. Like, Fantastic Fest is great, too. There's something about being downtown at, like, the stateside during South By... Dude, the, the premiere of A Quiet Place yeah. was one of the greatest film-going experiences I've ever had because that movie fucking shredded an entire Paramount theater full of people. I heard the same for Cabin in the Woods premiered at South By and, like, blew people out of the fucking back of the theater. Yeah. Like that, or Evil Dead, the remake, premiered there. Like they, right. Those, they, they do very well there. And us. The, us, that killed opening night. Yeah, exactly. That, and that was the Paramount, like, theater Opening yeah. like six o'clock movie or whatever. Yeah, well, uh, that's what a quiet place was too. That that's was right. I remember that year too. I mean, even something like this is not a good film, but it was better with an audience than it was when I watched it at Blu-ray Home. But like Daniel Espinosa's Life, that yeah. one year was the closing night movie. I remember that over at the Rollins Center. Yeah, yeah, the Long Center. Not a good film, but like with an audience. Okay. Yeah. Baby Driver is probably another one where like just totally killed with an audience. Like Atomic Blonde did. Yeah, Atomic Blonde. That it's a the thing about South by is that it almost adopts the same ethos as like booking big like rock concerts, which mm. I mean makes sense. It does the headliners really well, almost too well, to where it's such a top-heavy festival that a lot of the smaller stuff kind of just falls by the wayside. But when it swings for the fences, it really goes for it. And X felt like that for for 2022. Like, it was the movie that everybody wanted to see outside of the new Daniels film. What was really weird, though, is they did it at the state side, which is a very small theater. I think it yeah. seats 300. And about 50 of those seats were reserved for like cast and, cast crew. and crew. And I luckily got a ticket, like a, an individual ticket to go ahead. And um, thankfully I had to wait, like it's like a three hour wait. Um, so I was very lucky uh, to go in and get prime seats. And like, it was, people were just like tuned in on it. And it's one of those things like people were just there to have a good time. This is also his like most crowd pleasery movie. I mean, like, yeah, in the in the classic sense of like it is a gory horror throwback. It still has well, the, the tagline is literally they're dying to have a good time. Yeah, it's it's sexy, it's gory, it's really sleazy. It's really sleazy. It's just fun. Like it's got yep. some really unique killers. All right, so let's dive into the fun part of it. So here's my one thing that I've already seen raised about this film because I'm going to gush at length. This is my favorite movie I've watched thus far this year. I think it's a stone masterpiece. Um, I think it's a subversive movie, but maybe not in the way that we're talking about. To me, okay, so it's a slasher film. But the thing that we've talked at length about slasher movies on this podcast already. (laughs) And the one thing that we we can both, and we will (laughs) much more in the future too. But the one thing that we can 100% agree upon is that slashers were known for not, they're not big craft 
presentations. Yeah. Like they were fast. They were cheap. They were save the original Halloween. Yeah. Save Halloween. Exactly. Like they were known for just churning out sequels year after year during the eighties and like him equating slashers with porn is clever. What's even more clever in a sly way and to me feels subversive in this age of cinema is that he took a subgenre of horror that is not known for craft and made it a movie about the joy of movie making. This is the blowout of slashers. It's about how cinema is supposed to save these people's lives and ends up dooming them instead. And I just, in an age where we are inundated with Marvel movies and how like right now there's literally, they announced the, the teaser for avatar two is going to be attached to uh, the next doctor strange movie. Mm. And people are already being like, Oh, who cares about avatar two? And I'm sitting there being like, it's the next James Cameron movie. One of the neck, the greatest like, genre spectacle craftsman of our time. I'm going to see it eight times. In yeah. The I'm going to watch it 10 times in the movie theater because you don't know, <laughs> like, yeah, he's making all these sequels, but like, like we've 70. waited so fucking long for a James Cameron movie. And like, they'll announce again, a film that's like the premise is like, we got five Spider-Man, right? And you guys just jerk off all over this shit. But no, one of the greatest craftspeople in the history of cinema has a new movie coming out. And you're like, I don't know. And the Batman's a little long. Yeah, the Batman's a little long. Fuck all of you, (laughs) frankly. And the fact that Ty West made a movie in this climate that is a love letter to the the craft of movie making itself, like it just took my breath away because like that felt like a comment of being like, you can take the thing. This any piece of cinema in the, the the timeline of its history. And if you do it the right way, it can be totally breathtaking. And there are a lot of moments in this movie with, with edits, split diopters, the even the opening shot where he does his searcher shot where it, it almost changes aspect <laughs> ratios as it moves out of the door from the 16 millimeter boxy frame to the wider frame. Because at first I was like, oh shit, is this whole movie going to be shot in almost like Academy ratio? And then it moves out and I went, oh, like from that opening shot, I was fucking hooked. I was like, oh my God, what are you doing right now? And like he just keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going and I was just... I think this is a majestic piece of filmmaking that is like that we need right now because we're so like beaten over the head with this empty spectacle CGI bullshit. I love that. It was very well put. Um, my thank you. Yes. No, man. And now you said you're in a gush and you gushed and I'll put it in a simpler way for me. Um, it's just a damn good slasher. Like it's a that's, really good slasher. Like that's what I put it at. For me, is like I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's great. I loved it. I had a great time. Um, but I was like, this is just a really well made, like you said, crafty slasher. And what's the thing I kept thinking about, and I think you and I talked about this before, is I don't consider the original Texas Chainsaw a slasher film. Um, no, there are a lot of people say, oh, it's a proto slasher. Whatever. Okay, Psycho proto slasher, fine. But like. I think wrong turn movies of like ending up at a farm and being tortured and like being picked off that way is of that subgenre of like the Texas Chainsaw and its ancillary films, like Eaten Alive, also Toby Hooper. Which I, this very much pays homage to. Very much so. And I was expecting that. But this is a slasher film 
set in a Texas Chainsaw-like world because it plays out like a slasher. Well, yeah, like, that was the other thing I wanted to bring up with you with as people who have talked about slashers until we're blue in the face. <laughs> we always talk about how slashers are hangout movies. Slashers yes. are movies that just get you in with the characters. And well, it wasn't until West. we were... Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until we were, I was actually watching it that I went... Jesus Christ, Ty West is the most perfect person to ever make a slasher. Why didn't he do this before? Yeah, because well, it's funny because, again, back to his first great film, in my opinion, of House of the Devil, it's a slasher without slashes. I mean, that is a film that is, I mean, there should be a guy in the house with her. The whole thing plays out not like a demon movie. It plays out like a fucking slasher movie. Right. Like, that's what it feels like. Somebody's always lurking around the corner. It feels like it's very voyeuristic. She's being watched. But again, it's putting kind of like the same thing with the roost. You are the camera. Like, you are the one peering in and leering at her the entire time. Like, he gets the language and, and the cinematic vocabulary of the slasher movie possibly better than anybody working right now. That I've seen. I would say him and, uh, and Aja. Yeah, Aja's I, great I, I, too. I think I think what Aja did with high tension. We're gonna save that for right. season three's uh, kickoff episode. Sorry, because that's gonna be a whole new for. No, we can tease it. This is our teaser. It's a little little tease, but yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a, the horses are getting out of the, the barn here for me with Aja because I'll go crazy. But um, I think what I also at first I didn't love the design for the makeup for the old people at first because I said. Oh, well, like, should we give them some rundown on what the movie's actually about real quick? Basically, group of kids or, or professionals get together, led by a guy who runs a strip club. Uh, they go out to a secluded farm to shoot a porno called The Farmer's Daughter. It's the summer of Deep Throat. It uh, came out. 1979. Yeah. So it takes place in 79. Yeah. Deep Throat's in 72. Oh, no. So was it Debbie Does Dallas? Debbie Does. It's, yeah, it's Debbie yeah. Does Dallas. Is it's the also big in one, Texas. Which is also Texas because they're from Houston. They go out to this farm and then it's these two creepy old people who live there, which is a recurring motif in Ty West. Like Ty West really has a thing about old people between like the creepy old people in The Roost, Tom Noonan, Kelly McGillis in and the ghosts in The Innkeepers, even uh, Gene Jones's like father character, like he does not trust the elderly one bit. I mean, I don't either. That's one thing he and I can. That's agree fair. On. just die already. You know yeah, what I'm saying? I mean, what are you doing here? Um, but at first, I thought, man, this film would be a lot cooler if. These were like real old people. Like, get me, you know, because the old guy kind of looked like Stephen Mc. Is it at first Stephen McHattie? Get okay. you know, like that kind of thing. Just give him a little bit of makeup versus this obviously very made up face. And the more I thought about it, I said, Oh no, 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 no! He's doing a slasher, a hyper, not real world slasher. So they should have masks of some sort. These these like disgustingly designed specific faces. Do you know what I mean? Well, I took they're it more, another more way to, to go along with the craft showcase ideas that he got because they shot this in New Zealand <laughs> and he got to work with fucking Weta and the entire crew he talked about because Avatar 2, to bring it back to that, was on hiatus. His entire crew was made up of the people who were shooting a movie for James Cameron for the last like down couple, the road. Like, forever. Yeah, like... He got to work with some of the greatest like craftspeople in the business right now. So he was like, sure. Like, because he talks about uh, the old woman makeup in it is that that was seven to eight hours a day of application. But it was like, it's another 
a just canvas for him to show off like the trade of the people who make movies, who create these illusions that you fall into and the texture that he's so in love with as somebody who watches movies. Well, it, to put it another way, like he's got his toy box. Exactly. And he's going to show it all, you know? And it's like a treasure chest in this one. Oh, it's, it's very much. And again, like compared to his other films, which are, Maybe not to use the term, but slower burn, and they don't always have a lot of gore. A lot of gore. Much lower budget. Much lower budget. There's not a lot of, again, these crowd-pleasing, like, yeah, moments. This was, I'm really interested to see, for those of you who haven't, I mean, hopefully, not spoiling anything here, but, like, there is a prequel about the old woman killer in 1918, and of how she was at first at the farm, um, and they, they showed it at the trailer. This film was shot in secret. They shot yeah. it in secret while, on the same farm, um, I'm not telling you, I'm telling the, the, the viewers, but they, they shot it in secret um, while they were shooting uh, X and with Mia Goth playing the young version of Pearl. The well, and he one. wrote it in quarantine. Yeah. He, it, it, while the, during the two-week period when they all came over to New Zealand because they had to be in a hotel room by themselves, like quarantining just because of protocols and stuff. So he wrote a movie and over like FaceTime with Mia Goth, like pitched to her and was like, hey, so like while we're here, what do you think about if I can get A24 on board? Do you think we can do two movies? And one's like a prequel. And she was like, fuck yeah, that sounds great. So she got her on board and them on board and they just shot it in secret yeah when he said because she plays she plays the young the young basically final girl of the film and then also pearl in the makeup which i it was not known when we saw the film it just really some real tilda swinton and suspiria real, shit. very much and it works really well for this one because the film is about aging and she is kind of the old woman is obsessed with the loss of her youth and so she plays the young woman and the old woman well let's talk about that real quick because here's i was starting to go off on this before i went on my love fest earlier but like the one issue that i've taken with people talking about this movie is that they're like what i really like is that you know a24 has put this movie out and they're the the reigning champions of elevated horror where everything and we've bemoaned this in the past too <laughs> yeah. to where like every ari oster movie has to be about grief or trauma or trauma and it's not just a24 it's like you have stuff like relic yeah which is another one to talk about old people, but like even like Dave Eggers stuff, um, or I'm sorry, Robert, Robert Eggers. Eggers stuff. Uh, even Robert Eggers stuff is like, you know, this immaculately designed kind of like art film shit that like isn't traditional horror, let's say. So it's interesting that like Ty West is coming and being like, I'm just going to make a straight ahead slasher. I'm just doing it my way. You know, but like a lot of people have praised this movie for almost upending the idea of elevated horror of being like, oh, he just made a movie that was a fun, straightforward slasher. And the one thing I take issue with is like, I think that's like 70% right. But I also find this movie deeply sad. Like there's stuff in it that and a, a pervading sense of melancholy that, that overtakes it. Because as you just mentioned, it's all about this elderly woman who lives on this farm with her husband who can't make love to her anymore. Like he just has lost because of age. It's the way that we're all uh, going to, to lose it one day. It actually is almost like a play on to bring it back to Texas chainsaw. 
uh, that opening title. Well, not the Vietnam stuff, but the the opening title card of like, it was all the more tragic in that they were young. Like this is almost an adaptation of that single line in that it's about these young people going out because they keep repeating over and over, we have to fuck while we still can. We have to experience as much pleasure as we still can. And there's even that whole turn with Jenna Ortega's character where she wants to be in the movie and her boyfriend, who's the director is like, no, I'm not into it. And she argues with him with the rest of the crew uh, and the, the cast members basically being like, well, why? Like we say, like, this is us embracing youth. This is embracing like a moment. And if I want to be a part of that, like I should be allowed to, because I don't ever get this again. And then you watch from the other side, these two old people, like that's their entire story. And like, again, Ty West for all of the interesting character motivational stuff as like the, the slasher antagonist, he has like very poignant touching scenes with this older couple where like he makes you feel for them and he makes you feel their lost love and their particularly Pearl's longing for the past as like a dancer and stuff and how like she lost her first husband before the first great war as she says and like even when she makes her first major kill she literally kills sprays blood everywhere and then dances in the red light like she would have back when she was 20 something so like this movie is entirely about like re-embracing uh a a a piece of fleeting youth that we we all have to reckon with at some point in our lives as human beings and i think that that's much deeper than just ty west made a made you know made a movie for fun well and to take it a step, I agree. To take it a step further, that's what cinema is. That's what, yeah. I mean, that's what film is. Film is capturing time. Like it's that's a lot of theorists have written about that. Is it's a way to like stave off, you know, aging. You know, the, our movie stars will be young forever. You know, Cary Grant will be young forever. And yeah. So like he's, I'm not saying he's You're doing capturing that. their essence. Yeah. And and I, I like that. I think that like there's a nice moment where. Um, Brittany Snow is singing Changes by Fleetwood Mac. Um, oh, man. And it's like this like montage, and they're doing some De Palma wipes and stuff like that. And it's like split screen, which I know you were down for. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> you know which edit, like, completely... Like, that whole sequence just com- flattened me. Um, but there's an edit where Pearl is undressing and she moves between split screens. Yeah. And I've never seen that in a film before. And I was just like, Oh my God, like this is just real next level craft stuff. Except for the Hulk. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, (laughs) in such a moving artful way, even though I I quite love the Hulk. I love the Hulk. But yeah. yeah. Um, no. And it's, um, what I I like that A twenty four did it because I do like you said it's seventy they're seventy percent right when people say that this is kind of a, a different film for A twenty four I'm like good good because it I'll, is and it isn't because I think it's funny right before the movie started they had uh, the trailer for Alex Garland's Men oh yeah attached which looks like. The stereotypical A24 yes. movie. Here's a great actress in Jesse Buckley. She's Here's awesome. a, a noted, high-minded genre uh, expert with Alex Garland. It looks like a slow burn kind of folk horror thing. 
in Scotland. Which I am excited for. Still. No, I'm excited <laughs> for the movie, but that looks like your stereotypical A24 yeah. movie. You know, there's going to be a ton of subtext and it's probably going to be very oblique and we're going to have to parse out a bunch of shit. But like, that's what they're known for where this is more, you know, X is way more straightforward at the same time. I don't think anybody else except for maybe like neon would allow uh Ty West to get away with the amount of fucking that occurs in this film and very graphic fucking that occurs in this film. Because like I was not prepared for Brittany snow to be that naked in this yeah, or Mia goth, frankly, both, uh, look quite fantastic let's say but it was just like it was kind of like a spring breakers thing where i was just like oh shit like he got them to take their clothes off that's crazy jenna ortega obviously had a no nudity clause in her contract she was like 18 when they shot it oh uh, yeah and but she's I'm, so young yeah. but i mean like you know she's the only one basically that takes her clothes like we see so much of kid cootie in this movie that i was like oh wow but at the same time, like, you know, A24 would be one of the only places that would give him the freedom. Like, if he tried to make this movie at a studio, they'd be like, well, we'd do it. But, like, you're not going to have all this fucking nudity in it, right? And then, frankly, this is a spoiler for those who haven't seen the movie. But then again, I don't know why you'd be listening to a podcast episode about a movie you haven't watched yet. That's just demented, you you animals but like you monsters the old people fucking scene good lord like there is full-on old man butt thrusting and she's like pancake fuck me and uh, mia goth is crawling out from under the bed and shit and i was just like bravo ty west you you are a master of commitment right now because there is a Way more. I kept thinking about like, what if like Ty West like smoking a joint and being like, I have an idea. What if Irving Zisman fucked? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it it felt this film this film feels very similar to something we're not going to talk about in our other podcast, but maybe a little bit is is the remake of Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, it, it had that similar vibe where there's a lot going on politically in that movie. That's that's you know. There's also a throwback where he's also referencing Hooper as much as he is um, Craven in terms of sure. the, the film in that, and a lot of Carpenter and just and full on De Palma stuff too. Because Oz is also a craft guy. His pretension is also yeah. in the craft, not in the stories he's telling. Um, but it felt similar to that where if you have a moment. You go all the way with it. It's like you don't forget this is a genre movie. And so I was watching the making of Galaxy of Terror yesterday. And that film is known as like the fucking maggot rape movie. Right. And it's like because with James Cameron again, James Cameron. And again, with back to Corman of Corman understanding of like, you got to do the thing. Like, you got to show the thing. And this whole movie is about two old people who can't fuck. It's Chekhov's old man dick. Like, they got to fuck or at least, sh- you know, if not show it, like, get, give us something. And it's shocking. Have you watched Deep Water yet? Not yet. These make for a very interesting pair because there's something similar thematically going on with Deep Water in terms of, like, cuckolding and uh, keeping your partner interested let's mm, say sexually yeah. maybe even uh arousing some sexuality through violence uh in your partner and like this commits to it way more than than deep water does because i mean there's 
way more fucking in X than deep water. And I, I really, really like deep water, but deep water is after something a little more elegant and, and yeah, maybe not thoughtful, but uh, nuanced where X is just like, we're going to do the thing. Like you just said, like we're going to commit to the bit and we're going to gross you the fuck out. And then also, frankly, like the like violence in this movie is incredible. The the violence, the first kill of the director, um, JD, I forget his name, the character's name, but the, 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 the young kid slash director, him being stabbed multiple stabbed multiple times in the throat is opening up his throat. I mean, just like, well, to bring up high tension again, it, it reminded me a lot of the throat slitting yes. where he, she's carving up the mom's throat and it's just spraying blood all over the wooden, uh, blinds while she's hiding in the closet. And yep. he, she more or less like saws her head off. Pearl kind of does the same thing. Only it's just straight up stabbing. And like, as it keeps, uh, like splashing the the headlight of the van that the the murders happening in front of it and it just bathes her in that red light. It also reminded me of um, Cold in July, where in the gunfight where he shoots that dude's head off and it splatters all over the overhead light and suddenly the room turns to red. Like it does a similar visual thing here. Is that our first Cold in July mention this season? If it is, I feel bad. Yeah, since the first episode of this podcast, we gotta make sure we work it in every season at yeah, least once. Yeah, once. Yeah, just to remind people that Cold in July fucking rules. Yeah, and the Joe and the Joe Orlandsdale rules too. And also, like, there is a ton of uh, Texas crossover here. Let's say, Uh yeah. Um, but there's besides the gore, I think something to, to talk about that the audience I saw with Flip Four and I did too was his editing and his jump his jump cut editing. So, oh man. The there's, way he'll interrupt scenes. Well, there's there's interrupting scenes, but just straight up, like for for horror's sake, there's one cut that I think is so smart. Um, so Martin Henderson, who I didn't know was also from New Zealand. Did you know he's from New Zealand? No. Yeah, he's up there with the accent. Like, oh, is he fucking around? He's shot in New Zealand. Go, no, he's from fucking New Zealand. I never knew that. No shit. Yeah, he's got a great American accent, right? So he, because um, he was at the premiere, and when he is stabbed with the pitchfork through the eye holes um, in the, in the side barn. of the barn, which made me think of like the farmer's daughter, kind of like the milk, the milk cow joke. Right. Uh, put your dick through here. I think there was, they think they were playing with that there. Oh, 100%. Of the, hole, the hole in the barn. And so he gets it's stabbed. a glory hole. Yeah, it's a glory hole. And he gets stabbed in the eyes and that's not that shocking, but it cuts to Jenna Ortega and Jenna Ortega is in the basement of the house and she clicks the light on. And as she clicks it, it jump cuts to the the spikes being pulled out of his eyes and doing some and, Fulci shit. And the, yeah, exactly. And the audience just like lost their fucking minds because it was such a jarring cut. And very so, actually, kind of reminded me of the awesome um, some of the stuff that's like the best shot that everyone talks about from Exorcist Three with the the nun coming out of nowhere. Right. That. Wes has been doing that from the beginning. I mean, there's the, the last shot of the innkeepers is almost like a musical thing where you have this open door and it lingers on it. You're like for like 40 seconds, you're waiting for a ghost to move the entire time. And it's just this whole thing. And then it's like, it's almost that kind of like now, now, but how about now? And then it finally shuts. And it's like, and he's always playing with the kind of those, the way Hitchcock would do uh, of like setting up the audience where it's like sus how suspense works on a mathematical level. 
you know? Yeah. And I, I think another shot for me that works so well is also Martin Henderson is it cuts and you just see this giant fucking nail sticking up and it lingers on it for 10 oh, seconds he steps as on he it. slowly walks toward it. And the audience is kind of like, here it comes. And it's such a great moment because he just steps on it. Well, in the crocodile <laughs> in the river thing, when, oh. when Mia Goth goes and swims naked and then is going back to the port and we just watch from overhead the De Palma shot as yep. the crocodile pursues her and pursues her and pursues her. And I would literally yelled out loud in this empty theater where I was like, get out of the fucking water! <laughs> because it was just like he's just playing with suspense the entire time. But I think it, this is a good time to bring this up is that this feels in a weird way like the movie that Ty West has been building towards his entire career and the fact that he took six years off from movies and kind of just worked in TV yeah. shooting episode horror to episode. TV. A lot of horror TV, but like I was listening to an interview on The Big Picture with Sean Fennessy with him where he talked about the difference between directing mm. TV and directing his own features and that with his own features, he he's the guy in charge and if anything goes fucking wrong it's like him. it's on him it ruins his day like he's just pulling his hair out the entire time where when you go for tv and not to mention all of the other headaches of just making a feature-length movie of like getting the money having the money fall through getting the money for somewhere else making your day yeah making your days if the, if it rains suddenly like you lose a day like I read now you're all too. behind yeah like, yeah like he's going through all of that where he also says like, but then when you shoot TV, it's just like, okay, can you be on a plane by Monday? And you're just gigging and you're helping somebody else um, essentially because he kept referring to himself as almost feeling like a consultant the yeah. entire time to where it's like he, he looks at these people and goes, okay, well, how can I help you execute your vision? And by working on that on like a craft level, you could see all of that refinement on display as he makes X. And then also, I mean, this feels like a, a litany of his fetishes. <laughs> and, and, and to put it in pornography terms, frankly, is that like you have scary old people, you have all these long takes, you have extreme gore, you have pretty women with like feathered hair you have animals attacking like you have slow burn horror you have the hangout portion of the picture it's just like it's it's the most tie west that you could possibly get but it's presented in the most refined package that he's presented yet and i think it really is not only his masterpiece but possibly like obviously time will tell as go as it goes on but like to me this feels like one of the great new masterpieces in modern horror because it's just so fucking good i, I love it i mean and again for me just a damn good slasher yeah and, and, and if we you, haven't it, gotten one it, it's so it's long. been so long if you give me honestly the last one i can think of that affected me like this was it's not me a full slasher but the feeling of hills have eyes in 05 where i was right. like this is a new this is a guy who knows the game. Or even High Tension. Yeah, like, sorry. Yeah. High Tension is probably closer to me because that feels like the French Ty West movie to where it's like, you've seen this film before. And I've, actually, you've seen all the multiple movies that this jams into one film before. But it's all about the execution. This is my version of it. And it's a repackaging in a way. And that's the how Ty West's entire filmography is basically summed up. Yep. And I've, you know, I will say for all my that you are more of a fan of his than I am. But where I'm at on X is I'm just ready for Pearl, man. I'm ready for the next one. If he's going to work at this level from now on, we're good. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, if this is what we're going to get is this size movie, 
cool. Yep. Like, I'll, I'm there for it. Always. And you better believe when Pearl comes out, Secret Handshake's going to be doing an episode on it. But until then, this is Jacob Knight and Martin Carlson saying, go see fucking X, goddammit, so we don't have to sit through any more MCU movies. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>